<laughs> so it's been a couple couple weeks, more than a couple of weeks. I have lost track of time again. Uh, I think it was. Well, actually, I have no idea. Anyway, uh, I haven't actually edited the last two episodes because those are the ones with breaks in the middle, and I'm very lazy. Yeah, to I do mean, it. who can blame you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I will have to find some time, I guess. To I mean, what a put everything bizarre together. commodity to 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 have to deal with now. Time. Uh, uh. Yeah. I mean, I am okay. So on top of the of the forty hours a week at my jobby job, as mm-hmm. uh, ATP would put it, <laughs> forty hours um, a day. Sorry, <laughs> forty hours a day. Ha ha ha. Forty hours a week at the jobby job. Um, yes. I'm working Saturdays part time. Yep. Um, then I have school, <laughs> yes. just taking one class, but, um, I mean, I, I, I tried to front load as much work as I could because the classes opened mm. a week before my work started. So in that one week, I completed all the quizzes. Um, good Lord. Yeah. And I think all the quizzes are like 5%. Like I think the quizzes total up to five percent or something. I can't rem- I can't remember. Then um, okay, yes. Then I've been just dedicating like some time every week to doing the assignments. So the first half of the class mm. was Python, and mm-hmm. I started out. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm comfortable in Python per se, but um, because I did CS fifty, right? There is a level of comfort with Python. And because my, yeah. um, yes, the the language that I'm probably most comfortable in is Ruby, or maybe JavaScript. Now, I mean, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I'll say they're probably equal at the moment. And Ruby and Python are pretty similar. Like, if you go from Python to Ruby or vice versa, you definitely notice the the influences. Um, yeah. So Python wasn't that much of a challenge to adapt to uh, but we are now into mm-hmm. Java which is a language oh, that I've been a... assiduously <laughs> avoiding for years and years and yep. years right like for good even, reason yeah like I mean it has a reputation um, yes there is that there is that Steve Yeager um, blog post about execution in the kingdom of nouns which yes it, you send that a, to me yes yes so this is a a good time to put that in the show notes. And mm-hmm. this is a blog post from like 2006. And I, I mean, I remember reading it way back when. Um, and I th- thought it was very funny at the time. But it, to me, it was just another reason like, don't use Java. You know, because... Yep. <clears throat> let's see. Yeah. I, I think like as a, you know, in secondary school the language that I got the most used to was PHP. And at that time, right, yes. PHP was written mostly in a quite an imperative style. So you start at the top and then you, you, you know, work your way through the, the script and you get to the bottom, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think, did I do a bit of C? I can't even, I can't even really tell anymore. I th- probably spent most We did like, see a long time ago as well in primary like the, five, right? Well, I don't remember. I mean, I don't yeah, remember. We, we, I mean, primary, well, 
Primary four was but, Visual Basic. Primary I, I five think, was C. Primary. I think it's worth no, pointing out, right? Like, like that, when yeah. most people start programming, they start in a fairly imperative style, right? So you you kind of like you start at the top of your program and then you work through to the bottom, and it's like it's very much like a step by step by step. Okay, sorry, kind of I think situation. you're breaking up a bit. It might be my internet connection. Give me a second. I think uh, it is. I'm just going you... to very quickly yeah. hop onto the alternative uh, Wi-Fi network. Okay, sure. So, I mean, I actually hear you fine. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. So I'm not. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. So now my connection is unstable. What the hell's going? Anyway, yes. Ah, uh, whatever. So the thing is, no, um, anyway, when you are working in a very um, imperative style. I think I, I think mm-hmm. that's fairly easy for people to get used to, the idea that you start at the top and then you work your way down. And um, mm-hmm. I have no idea what just happened to my mic, but it, it just went wonky for a second. Ow, technical issues. Yeah, it fritzed a bit, yeah. Yep. Oh. <laughs> um, but then when you get to... You, you can't work in Java unless you can get your head around the idea of classes, right? And I actually think, right. I actually think Java is not a good first introduction to object orientation. Okay. Um, to but a lot of comp science students learn Java as a first language, right? So this yes. This like, yeah, this is from NUS. Yes. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that, right? One what, is off the deep end, is it? Swim. Not, not necessarily. I mean, I actually don't think Java is is um, hard to learn per se, right? If you compare okay. it to the alternatives... Okay, let, let me adjust that. Let me adjust that. If you are a comp science department and you're trying to decide what language do we teach our mm. undergrads in, right? Uh, what what languages do, do we want them to start in, right? Because the fact is, if you are going to study comp science... You have yep. to be conversant. Conversant. You have to be comfortable in a variety of paradigms, right? Yes. But that's the end goal. Where do you start? Mm. And um, these days, obviously, a lot of programs will start with Python. Mm-hmm. Um, for for a lot of reasons, right? But I think before Python became such a common choice, the the two like biggest competitors would probably be C and Java. Right. And okay. C is a very like structural um, language. And I I think the way that people would talk about C is that I mean it's not really object oriented. Um, you can make it behave like an object-oriented language, but it's not really the way that it's built to be. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Java is aggressively object-oriented, right? Right, and that's something <laughs> that yeah. that's something that um, the suddenly I can't speak. Okay, that's something that the Steve Yeager blog post talks about, which is that there mm-hmm. is almost no other language that is so obstinately object-oriented. <laughs> um, and I don't know to what degree this is built into the language and to what degree this is 
the convention of it, mm. right? Um, because the fact is, even the most okay. So okay, I I don't even know where to begin with this conversation because I feel I've been all over the place. Right. Um, the thing is, if you look at a language like JavaScript or a language like Ruby, which happen to be my two more or less favorite languages, right? Yeah. Um, there are lots of ways to do things in both languages. In the sense that you can have multiple different approaches to doing mm-hmm. things in either language. Yeah. With Python, Python is a bit more prescriptive. Um, it's very opinionated <laughs> about how it wants things to be done. And I've right. seen this, uh, I don't remember where I saw this example, but in in terms of like the the community mindset, right? If you look at Ruby, Ruby has a REPL called IRB. Mm-hmm. Right, are you familiar with REPLs? No. Okay, so but a REPL is a, is a read, evaluate, print, loop um, application, pretty much. And um, it, when you start a REPL, it basically lets you just type in uh, a line, right? And then have it evaluated. Okay. Right? So it's like, you know, if you're in Python, for example, right? I mean, if you're in your, if you have Python on your, on your computer, right? You just type in mm-hmm. Python or Python 3, and mm-hmm. then you can start typing lines of Python. Yeah, right. Right? Okay, yes. And then whatever is evaluated will be printed, and then it mm-hmm. will wait for another another line to be to evaluate. That's mm-hmm. a REPL, right? It's okay. very good for like quick testing and just finding yeah. out. Interactive like, testing. Yeah. I think what, what, pretty yeah. much. I mean, Jupyter is, is a REPL pretty much. I, yeah. I, I oh, guess, okay. I guess you, yeah. I don't know if Jupiter builds itself as a REPL, but it pretty much is a REPL. Jupiter. Ha 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 ha. Okay. Jeez. Um, so the Python REPL, right? Mm-hmm. If you, I, I shouldn't start with with the Python part. I should start with the Ruby part. The Ruby REPL, right? Um, offers you multiple ways to quit, I believe. You can type three exclamation marks. You can type okay. quit. I think you can type exit. And three I exclamation think... marks if, you, if you're really, really frustrated with your code. Um, well, I guess I guess you can think of it that way. I just think of it as, as, a, <laughs> as a, you know, from the semiotic sense, it's just a, it's just the thing that makes you quit the REPL. I don't really think about it that way anymore, but yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> um, but basically, Ruby's interpretation of it is, okay, clearly you want to quit the REPL, right? If you type mm-hmm. quit, if you type exit, if you type three exclamation marks, all of those things mean quit. Yes. And so you, uh, it will just quit for you. Yeah. In Python, if you are in the REPL and you type exit, right? Mm. It will say, yeah. use exit, exit. brackets. Yes. Right. It says, use exit brackets to quit. Yes. And I've seen this being um, mentioned as a demonstration of how the paradigms are different. 
right? I shouldn't say paradigms. This is more a mindset thing. Because right. in terms of programming paradigms, the two are very similar, right? But in terms of like the community mindset, the Ruby mm. attitude is, I want to... Whatever works. I, I, I want to behave in the way that the programmer expects, right? Okay. And if okay. the programmer expects that this command will quit, then I will quit. Mm. Python thinks of it mm. as there should be one way to quit. And if the programmer chooses the wrong way, I will nudge them to the right way. Authoritarian. <laughs> you can think of it that way, I guess, yeah. I mean, another... Fundamentalist another kind of... religious. <laughs> Python sometimes has that quality, but people will also say Ruby has that quality in the sense that people who really like those languages really like them. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it's you don't... Cult. <laughs> to be honest, right, when I started with um, both Ruby and Python, I mean, I was kind of wary of that aspect of it, mm. right? You don't really get a JavaScript cult. There are very few people who are that enthusiastic <laughs> about JavaScript. Because they right? are shunned by society. I don't know. No, you're, but you're right. I've, I've, not, I've not met adherents of JavaScript, you know, on the same magnitude of, of I think fanaticism part of it is that JavaScript is, I think part of it is that JavaScript, well, firstly, for all the people who write in JavaScript, if you want to write client-side um, code for the web, you don't have mm. a choice. You yeah. write JavaScript or you write JavaScript. There, you don't have an option. Right? right, and so I think for a lot of people, they just think of it as JavaScript allows me to do cool stuff that I otherwise mm -hmm. cannot do but I don't have an attachment to the language. No attachment. Right? <laughs> yeah. Very Buddhist. Very Zen. <laughs> yeah. Whereas for people who choose Python or people who choose mm. Ruby, they've usually chosen it over something else. Yes. And so that means that they find something in particular to recommend it. Mm. Um, but I think where you fall on, you know, like do you prefer Python or do you prefer Ruby? it tends to be along the lines of, well, which philosophy do you prefer, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, there is, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these types of debates among programmers have the quality of like a theological debate, right? Or a religious war. <laughs> um, because I think part of it is how do you think? Like, how does your brain work? And yep. also what do you value? <laughs> so, yeah. so people can get very wrapped up in it. I think another example that I kind of often bring up, right? And I think this is probably more distinctive about, about Ruby than about any other language. And I think I'm breaking up again, although I can't tell. It's getting a bit choppy, but you're fine. Okay. Uh, and my phone just went as well, so... Yes. Okay. So... In Ruby, if you want to find out the size of an array, there are three different methods you can call. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can do array.count, you can do array.length, and you can do yes. array.size. Mm -hmm. And this seems excessive. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't think there is any Redundancy, other Redundancy, right? 
I don't know if there is any other language that I know of where there are three methods that do the exact same extremely basic operation. I think in most cases, right. you're just expected to... This is such a common thing. If you're going to work in this language, you learn what this language does, uh, right? Or how this language yeah. does it. And yeah. I think with... Okay, with with JavaScript, they just aped Java, right? It's mm-hmm. array.length. Mm-hmm. Um, with Python, it's len, and then you pass in the array as an argument. Right. Um, I think the Python attitude to it is we have a method or we have a function that determines the length of an array. Mm-hmm. Why do you need three of them? Yeah. Right? And the Ruby attitude is depending on what language you come from or the way that you think, right? You might have different expectations for what the name of the method is, right? If you come from yeah. something Java-like, you might think, oh, array.length. If you come from PHP, you might think like array.count. Hmm. And I don't know which languages use size as the, as the method name, but you might be thinking, I want to find out the size of the array, array.size, right? And the right. goal of Ruby is to do to respond in the way that the programmer expects. Mm. And so they have aliased those three methods to do the same thing. They're identical. Yep. Yep. Right. Um, but I think to me I think that's pretty indicative of the of the difference in mentality. The funny thing of course is that as with many programming languages, there are multiple ways to do the same thing in Ruby, but Ruby, the Ruby community can be fairly opinionated still about what is preferred. Huh. So, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. So I don't think there are, um, I don't think there are a lot of languages, if there are any others, that have... Um, until and unless okay okay <laughs> which is which is <laughs> I, I personally think that it's very cool right but yes if you I, have I, a, yeah if you have a if you have a conditional that goes if something is not true mm-hmm. do you know if x is not true right do y mm-hmm. right yeah and if you type if not something, right? Mm-hmm. The Ruby linter, Rubocop. <laughs> Rubocop. <laughs> will point it out to you and they will say, if you're going to use a conditional that has the form if and followed by a negative, you should use unless followed by a positive. Right. right. Yeah. Yep. So rather than saying, if X is false, do Y, you should say, unless X is true, do Y. I don't know. I mean, I get I get where Rubocop is coming from, but I like it the other way. You might be a Pythonista at heart. Then I'm, I am, I am a Pythonista. There we go. Yeah, um, I'm hated universally by the Julians and the Rubyists. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if Rubyists hate Pythonists really. Um, <laughs> I think Rubyists are fairly chill in general. Fair enough. Because no, I think of the I, a lot of my, 
A lot of my, my programming, uh, I mean, my syntactical philosophy comes from R because that's really the language I'm most now natively familiar with. That's the, that's the funny thing. I've also seen this comparison made between Python and R, which is that R lets mm. you do the same thing multiple ways. Yes. And, um, R is and very Python, flexible. Yeah, and Python heavily discourages it. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean the other I thing as well is that Python. So mm-hmm. R has all these sub packages written into it um, yeah. that make it more user friendly. So the one pack, the one package that uh, a lot of scientists, at least you know grad students, like is called Dplyr. Mm, yeah, I've seen um, that around. Pliers because you know plier because it literally helps you to <laughs> get things done, um, and so it it allows you to pipe. You know, it's it's kind of like in Bash where you can pipe things from one command right, to another. Yeah. So yeah. it allows you to pipe. Um, um, outputs from one function to another. It's building quickly. a pipeline, basically. It is building a, a pipeline, and a, it allows a data to write, pipeline. Yeah, yeah, incredibly elegant looking code, um, mm-hmm. and it, it's just and it, it, well, the, the broader universe is called it's called the tidyverse. Yeah, because it allows you to write really tidy looking code um, that is easy to read, uh, and you know that you can you can do it this way or you can do it you know the the sort of base R way as well. So it's th- stuff like you know, for example, if I have a table. Mm-hmm. Right, and each row is a single, say, and a single occurrence. Uh, okay, and, you know, uh, within your table you have groups, right? But because you are, this is the full table, every single uh, uh, record is a, is a separate row. It's not right. collapsed. It's not say males. You know, it's, it's not summary of say all the males and all the females and so on and so forth. Okay. so you can use commands like melt or <laughs> explode. I think I love you know, explode. To, I think it's oh, hilarious. Yeah, reshape okay. or melt. I mean, there's basically there's a whole variety of these commands that allows yeah. you to, to, you know, to, 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 I guess in Excel terms, it's pivot your table. Yeah, I, I, I kind of mentally think of them as pivot tables. Although I, I don't know if I don't think that's exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah, because right. Um, I, well, in anything mildly data related, you have this concept of aggregators and yes. i can't i've i've yet to figure out like what is the difference between a pivot table and an aggregation yeah anyway i, I don't that's, really that's getting a bit into the into the weeds that i you know yeah. yeah but yeah so so you know i think r is versatile like that because it depends on it allows you to to vary your approach depending on which sort of programming syntax you're or not i would not, not programming syntax but which approach you're more comfortable with uh-huh. Whether and I mean you know it, okay, put it this way: drawing graphs. Yeah, you know you can use base R to draw graphs, which is uh-huh. built in, or you can use uh, a ggplot, for example, right. which which you know generates graphs in a slightly different and some would say more more uh, visually pleasing manner. So mm-hmm. I uh, that that's what I enjoy about R Python. Yeah, I mean it's maybe maybe that's why Python does strike me as being a bit clunky. It's not right. my language of choice. Right. I've also seen, um, I think this is a kind of question of, <sighs> okay, so people talk about data science as if it's mm. one, as if it's very clear cut what it is, right? It's statistics. <laughs> well, Everything is statistics. In a sense, yes, right? But I mean, when you say like it's statistics, I think there's also a different set of um, expectations about what you're going to use or what you're going to do. Um, it's a linear regression. It's always a linear statistics. regression. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. 
but the thing is... We'll get to that, yeah. The thing is, okay, so because for uh, one of the assignments, we had a data mm-hmm. science um, assignment, which yes. was to analyze celebrity deaths. That was the title of the assignment, which... jeez, oh, kind of... Yeah, it's a little bit... It's a little bit... Um, yeah. Very but 2016. it's... Is it? From 2016, yeah. So I don't know where they got it from. Um, I, Wikipedia, I think. Like in okay. Wikipedia, right, if you go to the page for any given year, it gives you a list of yeah. people, like famous people who were born or died in that year. Yeah, I think that's where they got it from. And um, the idea was that we would use pandas to mm-hmm. run basic kind of queries on it. Right, sure, and find out okay who's the who's the oldest person who died, who was the youngest person who died, how many Americans died, um, how many, uh, like, you know, grouping them by cause of death, mm-hmm. oh, that geez. kind of thing. Yeah, Not bloody also, morbid, but okay. Yeah, but also to kind of to um, I think there was one that was like make a list by nationality. <laughs> Oh dear me! <laughs> that kind of thing. So, um, that was kind of my first real introduction to actually using something that's not Excel to analyze mm. this kind of data. Not right? fair, yeah. And I, well, I don't know if I would say I, I, I definitely wouldn't say that I enjoyed it, right? Huh. But I would put it as. I'm curious about it to the extent that I'm curious about anything. <laughs> mm, okay. Right, okay. So I kind of was like, oh, okay. Well, obviously we are doing this in Python because we started with Python and Python is a pretty good general purpose language, whereas R is yeah. so often confined to the domain of stats. Right? And right. data visualization. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking to myself, well, if if you wanted to get serious about it, right, what actually is the difference between Python and and R. And mm. ev- like there are so many infographics and articles about how you're comparing the two languages against each other, saying like R is better <laughs> if you are blah, blah, blah. Python is better if blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that kind of thing. Like, oh, the serious scientists use R. Python is easier uh, to learn. R has a... Or, or R is easy to learn, but hard to master or God knows what, right? There's so many... Uh, comparisons mm-hmm. but nothing that and then at the end they always end with um, either use whatever your company is using which right. is not helpful because if you want to find out which one to learn yep. that doesn't tell you much um, yep. but also um, either one can do whatever you like <laughs> which is true but that's not the point yep. right I want to like there must be... Okay, let me put it another way. Yes, it is true that any Turing complete language can do what you want. Yes. But there must be reasons that in a professional environment, one is preferred over another. Mm, and I don't right. care how small the differences are, right? But I want to know what they actually are. Mm-hmm. Right? And it may be that the case that really for somebody starting out who's just starting to learn, the choice really doesn't matter. But I want to know, like, down the line, where and why is that choice made? Mm. So, finally, the thing that I read, and I don't even remember where I read it, 
that I thought was, um, like, finally somebody pointed it out, is that R is really much more common in academia. Okay. And if you are involved in AI and machine learning, Mm -hmm. the language that's used there is almost universally Python. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that might just be because Python is has a much um larger ecosystem in the yes. in you know, yep. as a general purpose language than R mm-hmm. does. But R probably has a stronger ecosystem in stats. Um Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, yeah. R has a lot of I mean good built in functions for well, I mean, okay, although this this gets me to my next point, right? To to the extent, you know, to which um machine learning is stats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's there's this common refrain that essentially machine learning is just linear regressions. Well, because yes. all of your all of your statistical um, techniques are effectively extensions of the linear regression technique. Right. Right. Well, I mean, we learned in secondary school y equals mx plus c, but the the standardized uh, not- notation that you learn at university is uh, y equals to beta naught plus beta one x. Okay. Right. So where your betas are your coefficients of your of your x terms, whether right. it's x to the power of zero or x to the power of one or x to the power of whatever. Right. So in, in the case of polynomial equations, but your most fundamental linear uh, linear regression equation is y equals to beta naught, which is the the intercept, plus mm-hmm. beta one x, which is your coefficient of your first term. Right. Right. And then you can extend this to multiple linear regressions, where you have multiple x terms. Mm-hmm. Or multiple multiple predictor terms, right? So X, right. Uh, Z, and so on and so forth. You can even right, right. have an ANOVA, a MANOVA, which is a multiple ANOVA, uh, <laughs> even PCAs, principal component analyses. Right, right. Uh, ANOVA is an analysis of variance. Sorry, I should yep. actually explain. And MANOVA is multiple analysis of variance. Right. Um, these are but, all extensions of the linear regression. That's it. But I think the thing is, if you if you think of, I mean, I I don't doubt that that's true, right? In the sense of mm-hmm. everything comes back to a linear regression. But yeah. I think to make a comparison, that's probably totally unfair, right? In a sense, all programming is ones and zeros. So, ah, wow. um, yeah. But I I think the <laughs> that's, idea that's is a big reduction. But okay, sure. Yeah. But I think the thing is right how many layers of abstractions have been built by other people mm. so that you don't have to worry about them? Right. Right. And I think that's where the ecosystem dis- discussion really comes in, right? Because mm. you, if you have access to something that, you know, if everybody is, is doing similar types of work in that language, then you piggyback on their work and then that, saves you time um, yes. but it also allows you to move faster but I, I guess those two yeah. are just really saying the same thing saves you time and gets yeah, you yeah sure and I think that, faster, that yeah. is precisely why Python uh, is, is I think the, the preferred language in academia yep. for machine learning uh, applications I agree yeah I think that here's, here's the other thing so when um, when I'm doing my traineeship my 40 hours a week jobby job mm-hmm. right um, we are working completely in JavaScript, and R- right. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. And I, 
I, I mentioned this to you off, offline, right? Mm-hmm. So we are working on the mm-hmm. Mern, SAC, MongoDB, Express, yep. React, yes. and Node. And um, previously, the bootcamp that I was at used a Rails stack. In fact, it's effectively the Basecamp stack. So Basecamp is the company that um, started, I guess, Ruby on Rails. I mean, they created mm-hmm. Ruby on Rails and then they open sourced it. And um, David Heinemeyer Henson, the CTO of Basecamp, um, mm-hmm. is the benevolent dictator for life of, of Rails. <laughs> benevolent dictator. Which is, is worth okay. pointing out um, the term benevolent dictator for life originated with Python. Um, right. Okay. In reference She's to Louise. Guido Van Rossum, who was the creator of Python. Mm. Right. right. So, yeah. I mean, as with anything that's open source, I, I okay, this is a whole other discussion about organizational behavior, right? You have open source and you have a community of people who work on this thing, but um, you can't really, it's not anarchic, right? Somebody has to make decisions. Yes. Right? Like the, you need a framework for deciding which direction to go in. And so a lot you need of open... Torvalds. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. exactly, actually. A lot of open source communities have a BDFL, and Linus <laughs> Torvalds is the BDFL of, of Linux, pretty much. Um, yeah. Somebody who says, we are doing this, we are not doing that. We are doing this, we are not doing that. So the bootcamp that I went to, Lavagon, they pretty much are all in on the Rails stack, which isn't just Ruby on Rails, but also includes Stimulus.js, um, mm-hmm. which nobody outside of the Rails community uses. <laughs> the um, the Basecamp team, they just released Hotwire, which mm-hmm. is a combination of some of the JavaScript technologies that they use, or some of the, well, the front-end technologies, I guess, that they use, right? And again, I don't think anybody is picking out on this other than people who already use Rails. Like, nobody who <laughs> is using React is going to suddenly switch to Hotwire unless they right. also use Rails, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think for... Okay, here's the kind of interesting discussion, right? This is... I'm teeing my second batch of, of students and there's always this question yeah. of why Rails? Um, because everybody who comes into the bootcamp for career-changing reasons is acutely mm-hmm. aware that by far the most common web development language is JavaScript. Yes. You cannot work in web development without JavaScript. End of story. Yeah. Yeah. So why center the bootcamp around Rails? Right? And I mean, I asked that question when I signed up. And the answer that I got, which I think is, is hard to... Like, at the time that the answer is given to you, you don't know anything, you just have to take it at face value. But I kind of see where they're coming from now with the benefit of hindsight. So the answer that I got was um, Rails allows you to build and iterate a product really quickly. It has a very strong and mature ecosystem. And the job market for Rails is mature as well, right? It's Mm. stable. Um, There are companies committed to using Rails. And... Mm -hmm. um, because of that, you know that there will always be a, a floor, right, of a number of Rails jobs. 
right? This yeah. is not a flash in the pan kind of technology. Yeah. Um, I mean, arguably, you could say the same thing about JavaScript. Like, you'll never have a problem finding a job, um, you know, for the next 10 years if you're really good <laughs> at JavaScript, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that part is a bit sketchy, I, I think, I think. But the argument about having a strong web ecosystem and being able to develop products really fast, I think that's actually true. The reason for that is because of the influence of Basecamp and DHH, the Benevolent Dictator for Life, mm-hmm. um, Rails is very opinionated. I see. Okay? okay. And it enforces what they call convention over configuration, which is if you do things this way, everything will just work. This is commonly referred right. to as Rails magic, which we have also discussed <laughs> yes. occasionally offline, right? Yes. If you name your tables or if you name your models this way, the tables magically get generated, the models magically get generated, the actions, the paths, everything, like they magically get generated, right? Yep. And you don't have to worry about a lot of you know, connecting the, the dots. The dots are just there for you. You just point them in the direction you want them to go. <laughs> okay? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, with the JavaScript stack, the most common JavaScript stack, right? The MERN stack. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that's cited for a lot of boot camps to do the, the MERN stack is that this is an all JavaScript stack. MongoDB, right, is a NoSQL database, but Mm -hmm. probably one of its most um, salient qualities for a lot of these uh, choices is that you query in JavaScript. Okay. Right, you write JavaScript to get data out of the database. Yeah. And there is this attitude of, okay, we need JavaScript to do stuff on the front end anyway. Mm-hmm. Why not use JavaScript on the back end as well? Yeah, up and down. I mean, yeah, just holding yeah. JavaScript. Oh, yeah. dear God. And I think the idea here is that, okay, if we can dedicate our students' time to just learning one programming language, they can get really good at it, mm-hmm. um, which is true. Provided mm-hmm. you make the effort to teach the language as opposed to teaching the technology, yeah. right? <laughs> because if yeah. you're teach, if you're breaking it out into here is how you use React, here is how you use Express, here is how you use MongoDB, then you haven't really gained that advantage where you're where you're actually teaching language features like closure, mm. um, asynchronous operations, and, and stuff like that. Um, and I, I personally don't think that there is a huge advantage. But where the Express versus Rails discussion for me um, really centers around is that it is true that Rails gets you off the ground much faster. Mm-hmm. People talk about the Express being more flexible, okay, which is also true. But the trade-off for flexibility very often is a lot of configuration. Yeah. And I think this is true of any kind of, almost any kind of software, right? Um, Like if you talk about like iPhone versus Android, like iPhone 
mm. people talk about iPhone the same way they talk about Rails uh, it, or Apple mm. in general, right? It just works. Mm. Yeah. Um, it feels like magic, right? Yeah. But then the people who love Android or the people who love Windows and Linux, they're like, it's more flexible. It, it's more powerful, <laughs> Right, it's not. Yeah. It doesn't force you into one way of doing things, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. It's more libertarian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would say that, but okay. Mm. <laughs> so, Anarchy, sorry. So the trade-off with Express is that to build a simple app, to build something very simple, you actually have to put a lot more effort into it. Yeah. Right. You have to do a lot more groundwork to get to the same place. Yeah. And I think this also reflects another kind of um, distinction, which is Lavagon, I think, is in a kind of strange place, to me at least, because they started out in France not as a career-changing bootcamp, although that's something that a lot of people do um, the bootcamp for. Mm. It started out as a more of a entrepreneurial bootcamp. Right, and they still kind of have yeah. that attitude of okay, you are a business person, you are a product manager, you are somebody with a creative background, whatever, and you have an idea for a tech product. Mm. So you come here and you learn what goes into the tech side of launching a tech product, yeah, right, and with that in mind. Choosing Rails makes perfect sense. Right. Because yep. you don't want to get into the weeds. You just want to get as quickly as you can to the point where you have something that you can launch. Yeah. Right? And yeah. the other thing is for a lot of these products, you are not going to reach a point where the problems, the issues of Rails, right? Um, start to become a major inhibiting factor. Like you don't mm. reach a point where you have a massive amount of scale. You don't reach a point where um, it becomes too unwieldy, right? Mm -hmm. Because the thing about mm -hmm. when you talk about Express being flexible, you can build it so that it only does what you need it to do. Rails okay. gives you so much other stuff up front, right? Mm. Um, it gives you, like, action cable, which... Okay, I mean, I'm not going to get into, like, the details, right? But it, it, it allows you to... to um, Where do I even start? Um, they, they ship with a lot of layers of abstraction. How about that? Right, yeah. Right? That you don't have to think about. But if you don't use them, they're still there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. which I think can make some people uncomfortable because if you are going to be devoting, um, if you if you want as streamlined a product as possible, right, the bigger that you grow, then they'll be like, why are we using this humongous, massive thing that we're not even fully utilizing? Maximizing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, efficiently using, yeah. Yeah. But if you are a boot camp and your goal is to secure as many job placements as possible, mm -hmm. then yes, 100% it makes sense to go all JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah, right? I agree. Yeah. But then the problem is in the boot camp context, you spend so much time on stuff that 
wouldn't um okay let me let's say in the boot camp right you have a a project mm-hmm. and you talk about all right let's build a small personal side project mm. you spend so much time configuring yeah stuff that would just be there uh yeah. if you had chosen another technology so yes this is a kind of mismatch of what you um what you've chosen the technology to do and what you're actually doing with it right mm-hmm. in the case of javascript you've chosen this, this technology because it's very commonly used by big companies by established companies by companies that have huge amounts of scale but when you're building a small personal project, you're like, why am I torturing myself? This is, this is how I have felt this week. <laughs> right. And the answer is, yeah. yeah, you're torturing yourself because this is uh, ostensibly a product that's going to work the same way for 100 users as it is going to work for 1 million or more. Yeah. I think Basecamp okay, probably like, has more than a million users. It's like, you know, you're trying to make a small, a small figurine, but you only have a machining you have yeah you have a machining setup yeah. <laughs> you're just trying to make a tiny little thing from that a little bit a little bit like that yeah. Mm. so yeah well yeah but i think more broadly right like let's say you, let's say you are a startup mm. okay which technology stack do you choose like do you choose mm. rails because you know we know that our goal is not to have a massive um product we know that we're going to have a lot of iteration in the early stages and rails will facilitate that and blah 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 or do you just commit to going all javascript because for yeah. one very important reason which is it's easier to hire yes and also right. i mean you know if you're a small startup you'll be thinking about future acquisition as well and if your entire code base is based on something that no other company uses or that few other companies use mm-hmm. your chances of you know portability acquisition you know uh, decreases yeah i think the challenge also right is that um i mean if you're talking about rails django um Mm. you know a lot of like non-javascript web frameworks Mm -hmm. none of them are going to die anytime soon right but you just cannot argue with the fact that every web developer knows javascript whereas Mm -hmm. some um, for most cases, even PHP, right? You will occasionally hire a developer who has to take time to get up to speed. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. You do have a certain level of uh, of trade off. Mm. And yeah. I think okay, this is something that programmers don't like to think about, right? Programmers very much want to be all about the tech, but. Mm. Very few purely technical products exist anymore. Um, right. Every every company that has a significant tech component um, also has a significant non-tech component. So this is another discussion that mm. we were having, which is why does Lazada and Shopee's user experience suck so much? Or AliExpress, <laughs> right? Or Q- yeah. Q10. Yeah. Why does it suck so much? Right? You would think that these massive companies, they would have the ability to just sink engineering and design resources mm-hmm. into the into their user experience and make yep. it less 
awful. Claggy, clunky, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. And the truth is, yes, these are tech companies, but for the if you are if okay, put yourself in the shoes of a product manager. You are given a budget, right, and you're told, okay, we want to increase revenue. We mm-hmm. want to increase the number of happy customers. Mm-hmm. The marginal gain, right, from improving the tech side of it yeah. is so small compared mm-hmm. to the, margi- the marginal gain from getting more vendors, from getting more partners, yes. from increasing payment channels. This is the enterprise software paradigm. <laughs> right? <laughs> like at some point, the software gets good enough. Yeah, and, and screw your UX. Yeah, and you start spending time on other things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, which is yeah. another well, way of saying... Another way of saying is, uh, okay, when will they get a marginal benefit by improving their UX mm. when they have basically taken over the world. But then again, when they have taken uh, over the world, why would they spend time on improving their user experience when they know that you have yeah. no choice? When you're, it's, right? it's, exactly. It's the, the SAP philosophy. Yeah. Right? You know, yep. you're, you're, you're one of ours now. <laughs> yeah. So... Or, you yeah you know you 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 it's stockholm syndrome now effectively i get very sad when i see like job postings for sap consultant oh, that no. are not from yeah, sap because... okay just <laughs> sap consultant there are companies who are hiring people just to manage their yes. sap systems that yes because sad. it's so bad it's really really i mean i don't know if you've ever had to deal with sap before you know uh, I mean, if you work at a university, you inevitably have to work with, deal with SAP because SAP does, you know, basically all the HR things is outsourced to SAP. Right. right. No, I've never dealt Leave with... application, filing do, for wait, I reimbursement. Have, I have used ah. SAP once, 11 <laughs> years ago. It's a bloody nightmare and it's slow as hell too. But, yeah. you know, so it, many companies use it. The funny thing is 11 years ago, right, that was literally like my first like real job. Mm. with real responsibilities of things that didn't get done yeah. if you didn't do them, right? Yeah. And yeah. I was totally a noob, like not even a uni kind of noob. Mm-hmm. And at one point, my manager is like, oh, you SAP. And I was like, SAP? <laughs> what is SAP? And then she looked at me like, you don't know what SAP is? <laughs> yep. That was my introduction. Clearly, to I've, never, since never then, I've never used it. Encountered a corporate environment. Yeah, I mean, no, since then I've never used it. That's my one and all, only time. All power to you because bloody hell, it's a. Yeah, I think I used it for like a room booking or something. I can't remember. I really don't know how people put up with this garbage that SAP is. Anyway. <sighs> yep. But you wonder if. Um, you wonder if. Because this is something that have, has been commented on, right? Like startups, they can't afford SAP. They can't afford WebEx. Yep. They can't yep. afford... Uh, what else do, do, do these guys use? Um, like... Hang on. WebEx sucks as well. <laughs> yep. Compared yep. to you know Zoom, even Microsoft yep. Teams. Even so I think Google Meet is better than, than, than WebEx. Good God. I, I think the attraction for a company like SAP, right, is mm. that let's say you are an enterprise. You've been around mm-hmm. since 1900. You probably have a lot of legacy systems, <laughs> yeah. right? And you want yeah. to just pay SAP 
um, you just want to build one company and have them solve that problem. Yes. Right. Whereas if you are a startup and you started in 2015, uh, firstly, you're probably a millennial, right? <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the executive team, they're probably millennials and yep. they don't have the money and the resources to yep. get set up on SAP, but they are also willing uh, or not just SAP, right? But anything like IBM, <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. anything that where where a big IT company just promises to handle all the, in the enterprise. Um, right. Where not only are you paying for the enterprise software fees, but you have to pay for consultants and you have yeah. to pay for the entire ecosystem of yeah. people, manpower that comes along with it as well. Yeah. And, and also, think, you know, infrastructure. Yeah. And I think if you're a smaller, uh, if you're a small startup, right? And you are making the choice fresh of mm. what technologies are we going to use to run our company, then you have a very different set of choices. Because now SAP looks like yep. a terrible proposition. Because yeah. we are so small, we don't need the whole package. Yeah. Right? We need like just the we need email and maybe mm-hmm. we need like web hosting and maybe we need like some kind of like shared um you know like a g drive of some sort right yeah Yeah. exactly a nas of some sort yeah yeah okay and we can procure those separately and yes it means that now we have to manage three services but we only need three services right if you are a massive company that has been around for like 100 200 years Mm -hmm. you would if you wanted to run it yourself you might need like 200 services and here comes sap or ibm who says we'll handle it for you Sounds great. Perfect. Well, which actually, I mean, the interesting is this brings up the the interesting sort of enterprise anomaly, which is Microsoft. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because Microsoft offers AD yeah, Active Directory, which basically does everything. It's mm-hmm. your user base. Oh, it's your yeah. it's your user ID. It's your email. Uh, where, uh, it's your mail server. It configures your mail server as well. It configures your storage systems as well. Yeah. So I think that is really the old, I, I, as far as I can, the think, old paradigm. I recall. The only sort of enterprise software that, you know, a startup would conceivably go and say, okay, yeah, maybe we should get this. I think Microsoft is very interesting because you can see that they took a sharp turn after um, Satya Nadella became CEO. They but were... this, this predates Satya Nadella as well. I mean, you know, Active Directory has been has been around for yes. zonks. Right, but you have to wonder how long more are they going to let Office 365 compete with, mm. with Active Directory? Especially now, you know, Microsoft Teams. Um, this is all a... built in. I, I, AD is basically like the master controller, surely, right? That's, uh, that's at least I'm not when sure. I, I mean, when I learn, uh, you know, how to how to uh, manage server environments? I'm not sure about that. Uh, I mean, I've actually never used. I I have been in a company where um, Exchange was the yeah. primary email. Okay, so Exchange service. runs off AD. So AD is right, the okay. master controller because AD okay. is what controls your user accounts, all the right. user privileges, and all right. of that comes from AD and then it feed it, it basically basically how Microsoft designed it is that it AD is the master and it filters out right. all these privileges to all of its separate software components. So whether it's right. Office 365 or Exchange or SharePoint or OneDrive. Right. 
Okay. Yeah, it all comes in from from that that core, okay. and it's a very clever system. Um, it, it 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 annoys people sometimes because you know if your AD fails, then your entire everything fails. But I think um, here, here's here's the thing that I think is interesting, right? One one of the ways that you can kind of clarify what type of company you are is who are you competing against? Yeah. So for sure, SAP and IBM are competitors, right? But yeah. I don't yeah. think Microsoft thinks of itself as competing against those enterprise solutions. That's they true. Who are they competing with? Gmail. G Suite. Mm, yeah, G Suite. That's right. Yeah. right. And G Suite was a fairly late, late come, uh, joiner to the game as well, yeah. right? And you can see that they are... Or maybe Slack as well, actually, with the Salesforce, right? Mm. If you if you think yeah. of it that way, um, they are also even more recent, much more yeah. recent than G Suite. So G Suite came about yeah. what twenty tens or late two thousands, whereas uh, ED has no, been around. I don't know about G Suite, but Gmail was in two thousand and four. Mm. Do you remember? Right. Yes, but G Suite came after of, that. Right. That's when Google. That's when Google said, okay, let's integrate our services into a single April. umbrella." Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Geez. Those but G Suite came after that, yes, correct. Because uh, yeah. I think Gmail came first, but Google Docs came later. So yes, it was only. I mean, they were not a competitor to to Microsoft until Google Docs. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't remember how we got here. I have no idea how we got here, but it's also been an hour. It's been an it's hour. It's been a fairly fruitful discussion as well. Might be a good place to uh, to to wrap up, but. Yes. Um, there was something I was going to say, but I forgot. Uh, anyway, since the only things in the show notes are about Java and R. Divas. Yes. Yeah. The, on, on the note of the Java paradigm, okay, there is a kata on Code Wars. Have I talked about Code Wars? I, I'm pretty yes, sure I have. Yes, right? you have. Yes, multiple times actually. Yeah. Good. So... There is a kata on Code Wars because uh, I was when we were switching over to Java, I had to brush up on my Java, and mm. I personally am not a fan of Code Academy, Code Academy, mm. Code Academy, Code Academy, Code Academy. Yeah, I personally Code not Academy. F- <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, le- okay. First of all, I'm willing to extend the podcast if you are available. I have not had lunch. Oh, okay. But, you know. Okay. I'm fine. Okay. Because I suspect this is another potentially one-hour topic. (laughs) (laughs) So here's my question. How did you learn Python and R? Uh, Okay, so, oh gosh, wow, shit. R was uh, by trial and error. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you stack overflow and then <laughs> you, you pick things up here and there. I, I, when did I start bloody learning R? Um, I think I started using R when I had to do something, right? I had, I had a very specific thing I wanted to do, a very specific analysis I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I looked through all the scientific papers and I said, oh, we use this particular package in R to okay. run this analysis. Right. And mercifully, I think the paper that I read, they posted their code. So all I did was I downloaded their code. And I know enough, you know, coding syntax to be able to right. generally understand what they're doing. Modified this you know, here and there and then ran it for my own purposes, right? Input files and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and output directory. Um, and it worked fine. And then 
over the years, I took a variety of sort of small courses that forced me to use R. So yeah. I remember there was one course I did as an undergrad that was on mathematical biology. Okay. Uh, which is, you know, using math to model biological processes. So for example, right. population growth. Right. right, you learn um, what we call the matrix, uh, the matrix model of population growth. Uh huh. This is actually quite fun. So if you if you have a population, you can represent the population as a matrix. Right. Uh, a matrix of age categories. So, age category one, how many individuals? Age category two, how many? That's your you know uh, cell two, cell three, cell four, cell five. Right. Right. And if you have a growth coefficient for mm-hmm. progression from one category to the next. Right, so from right, right. age category one to age category two, and so on and so forth, and then I'll find age category is mortality. Right, right. So death. So it's always a fraction. You're always yep. dividing, right? Yeah. And so you can use a matrix. Uh, you can you can re- represent right. the change in the population over time as a series of matrix multiplications. Right. Yep. And so that yep. was uh, basically how I. Uh, I think that was probably the first formal course I did that required the use of R. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, here and there, I've done some pop gen course, population genetics courses that, you know, also used R. In fact, the instructor that taught that course is super old fashioned. He's okay. like, do everything in base R. He's, he says, okay, I will teach you how to write code in R, but the way it was originally intended, <laughs> the way the founders <laughs> wanted it to be done. No packages. You know, none of this. No, no, no packages, none of this ggplot garbage. You write your own functions. Interesting that they say base R because the the JavaScript equivalent is vanilla JavaScript. But yeah, vanilla, right? Yep. Yeah. So it's like you know, you you don't don't depend on all these packages to do your population genetics calculations for you because so many of them have errors. You know the equation. Write the damn equation yourself into a function. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And okay. do the calculations yourself. And then I also did a sort of uh, a graduate student-led R course. So it's like, you know, uh, for the whole 13 weeks, each week, one graduate student comes in and says, mm-hmm. I know this about I know this thing about R, I'm going to teach. Right, right. And so so, cool. so, so my, my, sort of my R, R uh, development, or my, my personal development in R has been sort of very hodgepodge, very mishmash. Right. Python, on the other hand, despite repeated attempts at trying to break into Python, I never succeeded until I right. took a formal course in Python. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. I mean, right now I have like three different things I want to talk about. So let me let me mm. first wrap up the Code Wars comment. Yes. Um, I, I bring it up because I wanted to kind of get better at Java and I went right. to Code Wars because that's kind of my preferred solution. Um, mm. So, there is a Code Wars kata on um, Hello World. And I believe I've talked, I mentioned this offline as well. Yes, you So, have. Hello yep. World and is like your well. classic, like, this is how you just do the most simple thing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not even print Hello World, this is return Hello World. So, um, obviously, there are some very skilled Java programmers who think this is a good place to be funny, right? The top solution is just return hello world, duh. The right. second top solution is uh, involves um, ASCII art of do- <laughs> do- 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 Doge, Doge, I don't know. Doge. Yeah. Doge, yeah, whatever. So, it's the Shiba Inu 
saying much world such hello <laughs> but there is a boolean flag called M Sheba. So oh, if no. M Sheba returned oh, no. this and then M Sheba is set to false. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise return hello world. Right? And then wow. the third one. M-Sheba. The third one is actually pretty terrifying. Okay, so um because Code Wars doesn't let you view the solutions until we've passed it. Uh, I can put the link in the show notes, but chances are, unless you want to write a little bit of Java to pass the kata oh. and then look at the solutions, uh, you might not be able to see it. So there it is goes not like, enough time in the world. <laughs> so it goes like this. This is the third solution, the uh, third um, voted solution. And right. for sure, it got so many upvotes because enough Java programmers have been traumatized by code like this. <laughs> That they recognize, they recognize what this person is doing. It goes right. public class hello world, which is given to you, right? Okay. That's yes. Your Java program cannot run unless it has a class, and your class yep. must have a main method. Um, yes. <laughs> but that aside, right? Public static interface enterprise custom type type get as type. Public static class custom string implements enterprise custom type string. Uh, private final string value, public custom string, string value, this dot value goes value, which is this part is actually standard Java. It's not, it's not right. being verbose. At override, public string get as type return value. Public static interface, custom type provider type, type get custom type. Public static final class custom string provider implements custom type provider custom string, private final <laughs> custom string state, public custom string provider custom string state, this dot state equals state, another standard line of Java, mercifully. Yes. <laughs> Although somebody feeling a little bit more um, brusque might say that all of this is standard Java. All right. Yeah, I mean, self-immolation sounds preferable to this. Yeah, and then it goes on and on. And <laughs> How many on. lines? I don't know. I there's no line number on this. Oh, uh, uh, I've just passed the line that says at overwrite public abstract custom string build with one parameter mm-hmm. and the type of the parameter, the type of variable that this takes is enterprise string builder parameter state. Oh dear. Is the name of the type. Public static class enterprise builder factory exception it extends runtime exception, um, and literally all it does is public enterprise builder factory exception super, i.e. Uh, inherit from the from yeah. the parent. Um, actually, yeah, this 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 class has three methods and they just all inherit from the parent. Right. Um, yes. Public static final class enterprise enterprise hello world that's typo wow. that's a typo Enter, enterprise hello world string builder factory and then um at some point I have skipped over this but it says builder dot append hello constant append white space <laughs> append world constant oh no yeah and finally God. finally. The method that returns hello world 
abstract enterprise mm. string builder builder equals enterprise hello world string builder factory dot create new custom string provider new custom string exclamation mark <laughs> custom string string equals builder dot build typical java builder dot build yes. enterprise string builder parameter state dot yes return string get as type I mean, I, okay, you know, when, when you when you frame it like this, I can see why you know people who who run enterprise software, people who run SAP, have no time to build a proper UX because they're dealing with code like this. Probably, yeah. Or paradigms like this. Right? Mm, I mean, I, I I don't know. I I don't actually know what a SAP consultant. I mean, I I know at a very high level what they do, but I don't know what they are you know, nitty gritty looks like. So I, I don't actually Wait, know. I mean, if... surely set consultants are just front end people, right? Aren't they? Are I, they look, I have people? no idea. I have no oh, idea. Fair enough. I mean, me neither. Right. Anyway. Um, I think this is part of what um, Steve Yeager is complaining about when he talks about the Java kind of the kingdom or the sun kingdom, as he calls it. <laughs> the sun kingdom. <laughs> Right, but the way that Java programmers are inclined to think or are inculcated into thinking mm. um, produces this type of code. Yeah, and there is a subreddit called Programmer Horror, Programming Horror. Oh, I think. No. Yeah, and there are some actual examples of Java code that looks like this. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is why this is even a meme to begin with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway. Anyway, that's the that's the, the like the first thing that I wanted to talk about. The second thing was yes, I I brought up, um, you know, how did you learn R and Python? Because, um, obviously, when it comes to C and Python, I mean, I learned it from CS fifty, and CS fifty mm. does that thing where you do a lot of the groundwork in C, and then when you get to Python, it's just like here's how you do it in C, here's how you do it in Python, right? It's just yeah. a, like, conversion table. Yeah, um, yeah. that's a good yeah. idea. Okay. Yeah. And um, Lavagon has prep work, right? Before you start the bootcamp, they mm -hmm. ask, uh, in fact, as part of your your kind of like admissions interview, they ask you to do um, the Code Academy Ruby course and time okay. it. Mm. And oh, wow, they okay. say, yeah, um, time it. Because if you take longer than 10 hours, you are 100% going to struggle with the course. Mm. In reality, it really shouldn't take longer than three hours to finish the thing start to finish, honestly. Um, I enjoyed Ruby because that was my first exposure to Ruby. So that was the, you know, there is an element of, ah, this is a really interesting language, right? Like... I I recognize that, you know, the influences from Python, I recognize the influences from, from other languages. And that process of discovery was pleasant. Code Academy, though, I didn't like. Because I found it very, very constraining in right. that you have to go through in this order you have to perform the steps in this order, mm. right? And there is very little um, recourse for, 
I know this stuff or I want to move ahead. I want to go faster than this. Um, You don't have that option. You just have to go step by step by step. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I can I can see where this is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, that's the easy way of how to teach complex things. Right, right. It's the lazy way of teaching complex things, really. But yeah, it's how I learned Python as well. Right. Uh, you know, the, the instructor goes, "Okay, today we're doing for loops. For loop, for loop, for loop, for loop, for loop." So here's here's the other, like Python hardly has. I mean, Python has for loops, but <laughs> compared mm. to a C for loop, they're like. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what even is a for loop in Python? Anyway. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think I probably compared it very unfavorably to, to CS50. And of course, that's not fair because so many things compare unfa- unfavorably to CS50. Right. But I think, um, okay, here's, here's another side of it, right? Because there are a lot of people for whom a college-style class, but you sit in lecture for one hour, 45 minutes, and then you do your homework mm. for a week after that. There's so many people for whom this doesn't work at all. Yeah. Um, but I, for me, it's a very good format, right? Because you okay. have enough time to get into the theoretical detail, mm-hmm. right? The execution part of it, the part where you need to to learn by doing. They don't try and teach you in the lecture. Okay. They just say, here's the documentation. Go. Mm. Right. I mean, maybe and I learned differently because that's why I, you know, multiple attempts at trying to do uh, Coursera Python courses fail. Right. Right. But it's also no, no excuse because I run out of time to right. attention span to, to devote to um, looking at uh, so to, to be, listen to the lecture. To be so, honest, yeah. right, when it comes to... If it's theoretical, I actually really enjoy the lecture. Um... But for the lectures that attempt to demonstrate uh, stuff, right? Or like follow along kind of stuff. I actually really mm. dislike those. Right. When I'm at lecture, I want to just be at lecture. Okay. And then when I want to, when I'm supposed to actually learn by doing, right? Mm. I want to be left alone. Like, okay. no. don't, don't, don't put me in a situation where I have the video open on one side and the ID open on the other side and it's like, okay, mm. let's type this now. I freaking hate that. Mm, okay. I mean, right. well, this is interesting because I'm now designing a course. Right. Uh, I don't think I mentioned this to you uh, or maybe I did. Um, and this is another another uh, uh, segue that hopefully we'll return, return from. Um, <laughs> recent events in Singapore have shown just mm-hmm. how important it is to know how to make maps, especially if you're right. an activist. <laughs> right. Um, and so I realized that a lot of people don't know how to make maps or at least don't know how to even think about things in a mappy sort of way. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? To think spatially. I mean, to, yes, to think. I was going to think to, to think geographically, but that's not the right term. Spatially. To think spatially. Right? And yeah. so... I'm actually in the middle of designing a course that I should be... I'm not getting paid for. Uh, I'm just doing this purely for fun. Right. Um, to teach people how to make maps, um, you know, common map-making tools, um, common tech, you know, uh, common sources of spatial data as well, things like uh-huh. you know, um, government data, satellite imagery, historical right. maps, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the struggle I have right now is, you know, because obviously everything is still online, 
Mm-hmm. Right? How am I going to facilitate and teach this workshop, which a lot of it is very applied. Right. Right. In a purely online medium. Okay. You know, I don't want the kind of follow along thing where, you know, because put it this way, if I'm teaching this over Zoom mm, yeah. and, you know, you're, you're, you're one, you're, and I'm not going to assume that everyone has two screens. I don't have two screens. Yeah. I have one screen. Yeah. Right? If my Zoom uh, presentation is on your, is taking up your entire screen, I cannot expect you to be alt tabbing into the, you know, interface of the software that you're going to be using to make your maps and then having to jump back and forth again. That makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so right now I'm talking to people to, you know, who are suggested perhaps we may need something in person after all, a workshop yeah. style thing, which I mean, it's a challenge given existing prevailing uh, restrictions, but I, may I be inevitable. for courses, there is actually, um, like, I mean, obviously for dining out and things like that, the current restriction mm. is eight people, but I yeah. think for classes, it's, you can have more provided right, okay. safe distancing is enforced. Mm. And, you know, I mean, this is the whole thing that, you know, I experienced with my GIS, my Python and GIS course last semester, which I bitched about repeatedly on this, yep. uh, on, on this channel, right? Yep. Um, which which is that, you know, number one, you're being asked to follow along certain things. Uh, what the fuck? And number two, you mm-hmm. know, the slowness of, of doing everything remotely as well. It's just not tenable. So anyway, yep. back to back to where we were earlier. Sorry for yeah. segueing. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm curious about this because um, I see Code Academy recommended quite often um, as a good way to start and also, well, not dismissed per se, but um, caveated, I guess, mm. <laughs> right? As, okay, it's good for learning the mechanics, but yeah. it's not good for learning how to code because so much of coding is okay here's here's the flip side of here's maybe not a flip side of it here's the other side of it which is that because code academy is so prescriptive about type this type that type this type that Mm. you don't actually get the problem solving part which is by far more Mm. important right right i think that is what i find um, preferable about in class. So you're saying that you would just prefer if they had P sets. Yes, actually, I would prefer <laughs> if I would prefer if they had just had problem sets, which of course mm. is the is the CS50 model, right? You go to class, it's the you learn the theory. Model. Yeah, yep. pretty and much. Take the P set home. Take the P set home and and do it. Do it right. <laughs> to be fair, CS50 has like they they've done their own C documentation. Okay. Okay, uh, and they have a good amount of scaffolding, so right. they have CS fifty specific um, libraries and mm-hmm. CS fifty specific functions that abstract away some of the more challenging aspects of C. So, for example, yeah, like strings, right? Strings are a very fundamental um, concept. In programming, right? You don't say because you you need to be able to represent um, a series yeah, of, of of letters. You absolutely but, do. I mean, as in even in higher level languages, it's really an array of characters, right? But mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. most people, you can think of it almost as a primitive type. Right. In Java, it's not a primitive type. 
Oh. Right. In, in Yeah, in Java, a string is immutable, which is why you have a string builder, which drives me <sighs> insane. Jesus Christ. But I think Java is also old enough that this is somewhat forgivable. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, which also means that because it's not a primitive type, you can't just do comparison. You can't say, does string equal to that? Does string A equal mm. to string B? It won't be because they're two different objects. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Um, anyway. Uh, I think CS50, if I remember correctly, actually, they, they wrote a library to basically give you a string. Front, or they wrote well, their mean, own like layer of abstraction to right. hide so the like fact... The problem set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, to hide the fact that C doesn't have a have a string in the way that we mm. would expect in a modern programming language. Sure. Um, but they at some point they once we get to pointers, <laughs> they also mm. drop below that level of, of abstraction to say, so far we have been just using strings, but here's what we are actually doing. Right. Right. Okay, one but you get, get get some food. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Keep talking. So you only get. Um, to that point, I think in like week three or four, something like that, when you're already comfortable with the basics of it, right? With a higher level view of it. And then they drop through that layer of abstraction to talk about yeah. pointers. Yeah. Um. So I, I mean, I get that you do need some scaffolding and some handholding. You can't really just, you can't, you can't throw people to be like, here is a kata, do it, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't work that yeah. way. You do need to bring them to the point where they can even do a problem set, right? Because mm-hmm. if they could yeah. just, if all you were doing was just giving people problem sets and saying, do this, do this, do this, you might as well be an assessment book, mm. right? Yeah, yep. um, so there, there has to be actual teaching, but the structure mm. of, of the pedagogy, I think, is often overlooked or maybe mm-hmm. not overlooked but um underestimated perhaps mm, right yeah lacking in introspection no that's not the right way anyway I don't yeah. Know if I would, you, yeah i don't know if i would, I would put it that way mm. yeah but i also think in in a sense computer science is a very good subject to to teach remotely mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. because so many of the tools that you need to get really good at computer science don't depend on being in person. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think... Mm. Okay, so to be fair, Levagon doing a bootcamp and the structure of that bootcamp was also very good for my learning style because it's primarily centered around challenges, which are really P-sets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. It's, so, yeah. I'm I'm going to I mean, I'm just thinking of this in, in the context of the classes I've done recently mm-hmm. that, you know, because of the pandemic had to be shifted online. Mm-hmm. The the Python and GIS course I did, I I didn't really enjoy because of the the fact that, you know, GIS software is claggy and clunky and doing yeah. it remotely is a, a pain in the ass. Um, but I enjoyed the P sets. That one I I think I I I can appreciate. But the one that struck me even more was my statistics class or my effective data science class, which is, you know, how to use R for data science. Um, right. And that was taught remarkably well remotely. 
Okay. The only problem, and I think this is, you know, uh, bringing it back to the bigger picture, which is that mm-hmm. the pedagogical aspects of computer science probably can be shifted fairly easily online. Mm-hmm. But um, the the bigger sort of, um, you know, the the how you would structure a course that allows not only the, the learning of the concepts, but also the application of the concepts. I think that's where it falls, that there are challenges with just going fully online. So what right. we, we had to do, usually what we do for this course is, you know, you spend like 10 weeks learning a whole bunch of techniques, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's uh, linear regression, multiple linear regression, um, mixed effects modeling, or whatever, whatever, what have you. And then you spend like the last two or three weeks doing a project and you present the poster. Now right. that we had to drop, because if we're no longer in person, how are you going to present a poster remotely? Right. And so I think, you know, while certain aspects of computer science uh, can be shifted online, I think in terms of the bigger take home, you know, the, the way you structure course, What you use ComScience for. Mm, that suffers a no. lot from the whole online transition. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it. You, um, if you think about what you would normally do at the end of a of a intro to com science course, right? Mm. Is uh, I mean, in the case of CS fifty, you choose a project and you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> I imagine that when it's done on campus, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure that when it's done on campus, like it's a whole celebration, right? Of mm. here's everybody's projects, and it's a class with like seven hundred people. Yeah. It's basically yeah. a a fair, a, it's a symposium. Fair. Yeah, it's just awesome, right? And mm. then you go around, you talk to people, and you show them your project, mm-hmm. and all that, and all of that is gone. Yeah, mm-hmm. online. Um, yeah. In the case of the MCIT program that I'm doing at Penn, because it was designed, mm-hmm. the MCIT online program was designed to be online. Mm. Uh, there is a on-campus version. I don't know. I don't know if there are significant differences, especially in terms of things like presenting projects and so on. Right. Um, MCIT Online, they've pretty much designed it to... I'm sure there are group projects, right? But mm-hmm. I haven't encountered any yet. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've done it pretty much so that they can... I, I, it's kind of like if you're designing an online course from first principles, right? Mm-hmm. They've made it so that there are as few synchronous elements as possible. Right. So lectures are all pre-recorded, um, mm-hmm. which I okay. Here's the other thing about when you pre-record lectures: how do you do it? Because mm. a lot of so many Coursera courses. I, okay, here's also a distinction I think between Coursera and edX. Um, at least for edX, I seem to see more pre-recorded lectures in the sense of they are in an actual lecture theatre lecturing okay. to actual students more mm. often at least than Coursera. Mm-hmm. edX definitely still has the sit there and lecture to the screen kind of thing going yeah. on. Right? But Coursera really has a lot of it. Okay. So many Coursera courses are yep, it's green screen a slight yeah. show with a, with a voiceover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then there are also um, open office hours, open instructor office hours where mm-hmm. everybody gets on a Zoom call if you have questions, yeah. you can ask the professor. If you are stuck somewhere, the professor says, hey, share your code, you know, share your screen, and then we'll go over it. And then, um, and they actually organize it at different, um, in, in time zones, 
or at, at mm-hmm. times such that they are available to a wide-ish variety of time zones. So mm. for, I tend to go for like Saturday evenings. Mm-hmm. There's one at 9 p.m. Um, Singapore time. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturdays. So I don't think I've actually like really asked a question other than in chat, right? Right. I've seen other students ask questions and have, you know, the professor answering them. And I think this professor, at least, is very ill-served by the stand there in front of a green screen and mm. talk to the camera Well, format. I mean, okay, so I get where you're going with this. And, you know, this is going to something that's going to dovetail with your other area of expertise, which is professors need to learn how to do video production design. Yes. They really fucking need to, right? <sighs> yep. And many, many academics don't. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, you, I, I think I told you a long, I don't know whether this was on, on the podcast, but I told you about this long time ago when I made, I spent six hours making a video mm-hmm. um, as part of feedback for an assignment yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for my students in biodiversity class. Yeah. The, 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 the instructor looked at me and like, holy shit, you can do this? <laughs> yeah. I, and I mean, it's not a coincidence, right? That if you look at, mm. again, CS50, that mm-hmm. the production quality is super, super yes. high. Yes. Right? That's one aspect of it. The other thing is, like, uh, other than CS50, the other course uh, on edX that is often in the running for being the most popular course mm-hmm. is uh, Michael Sandel, Justice. Is it Sandel or, just, mm. or Sandel? I've actually never right, figured yeah, it never, out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've yeah. never heard I've it heard pronounced. Before, yeah. I've never said it aloud, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and those lectures they were recorded for PBS, right? They were a PBS series before they were on edX. Yeah. And so you have that production quality because those are actual um, cameras. Those are actual camera people, right? Who come into the edge theater and think about where are we going to put the cameras? What's the focal length going to be? How are we going to cut from one to the other? Not just that, but I think that, you know, an effective... Uh, lecture series should more resemble a documentary yes than a traditional that that transition from being in a space with the instructor talking to you to you are staring at the screen it presents not only does it change the dynamic of the instructor instructee relationship but it also opens up so much more possibility for doing new things which yes. is why when I made that, that video about, you know, which is just assignment feedback. It's not even a lecture. It's a question assignment that everyone got yeah. wrong. And so I decided yeah. I'm going to make a video to address this 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 yeah. wrongness. I know I went out into the jungle and I recorded myself there. And then I did a voiceover over an animation as well. Yep. And then, you know, you feel, so I felt the intro and the outro. These are things that vloggers actually understand instinctively. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah. Um, you know, which are people mostly of a certain generation, people like Hank Green, you know, people yes. like, uh, yeah. Which is and where I was going to go next, by the way, but yes. I see. Okay. And, and you know, and I, so, you know, in this new, brave new world of online learning, um, surprisingly few academics have sort of picked up on this. I, I do mm-hmm. notice one or two people who have been very good at this. Um, so, yep. Um, there's a professor of ornithology, but there's a bird guy. I mean, I'm I'm plugged into the bird world, so I know all the bird examples. There's a bird guy who uh, is teaching at UBC, uh, University okay. of British Columbia, Darren Irwin. Um, and so what he's been doing, he's teaching an ornithology course online, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, he can't bring his students into the field with him on field trips. Yep. 
So he yeah. does virtual field trips. He actually brings his camera out into the middle of you know, this lake in yeah. Vancouver. And then he says, okay, you know, when this lake now, here's what the sounds, you're, these are the sounds you're hearing and these are the birds that you're hearing. Yeah. I think he has a reasonable enough camera that he can zoom in. He go, okay, there's a killdeer. You know, that's this bird, that's that bird. And, you know, this is, the, this is what it feels like being out in the field. And yeah. that is what sort of this, I, I mean, I feel at least a lot of online learning is lacking. It's that, look, yeah. if you're going to be in front of the camera, you can go elsewhere. You're not bound within the four walls of the, of yes. the lecture theatre. Yes, you really shouldn't be doing the slideshow narration thing. Going, yeah. Nope. I mean, yeah. the slides can still be there. It's just that you don't have to do it standing in front of a lectern, yeah. lecturing in empty chairs. Go yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. Do it from the lab if you need to, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I mean, okay, if you're going to do the green screen approach, mm. right, don't put yourself over slideshows. Put something, <laughs> put an image, put something relevant, mm-hmm. put just anything, just not text. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we want text, we will read a book. Lord. Yeah. Assign right. a reading, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, so along these lines, right, I, w- I was, you mentioned Hank Green, right? Mm. And I think it's significant that Crash Course doesn't come yep. out of university again and it comes out of PBS. Or, well, I mean, they started yep. as a yeah, YouTube channel, right? Then. But the, the, I think the idea is that it's, it's a video production company at heart with educational mm-hmm. content, right? It's yep. not an educational company with a video yep. channel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, exactly. It's not scholastic or it's not, you know, one of those. Right. And I think um, in contrast between Crash Course, right, the other thing that I think about is the great courses. Are you familiar with the great oh. courses? I was going to say Khan Academy. Okay. I also have thoughts about Khan Academy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the great courses. The um, sort of, well, I mean, um, uh, sorry, just just going back briefly. Khan Academy and uh, Crash Course, and one more. These are about the the trifecta of the alternative American education system, right? Uh huh. Because Wait, one, one more as sucks. in I cannot. There's, there's, I, there's people posting about this on Twitter, but I can't remember what the third one was. But basically, the people right. people are saying that you know how the, in many parts of the US, the uh, education system is so terrible that students just dwell depend on Crash Course and and uh, Khan Academy for for knowledge, which is very sad. to put Crash Course into mm-hmm. the show notes as well yes. as the Hello World. Not that I think anybody will be able to see it unless they are willing to write some Java. Although, uh. that's it. Literally, all you have to do is type return Hello World. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I think... Um, so, yeah, back to your point. Along these lines, right, it's probably worth bringing up number file. Yes. Right? Yep, yep. And again, this is a video. This is somebody with a video background, right? Mm-hmm. Who's taking their video experience and yes. talking to the people who have the knowledge. So yes. the driver of the pedagogy is not the professor, right? Mm-hmm. The driver is the producer, the video, pro- the documentarian. Yes. And um, I think... This is, well, okay. This is this is kind of challenging because you you kind of have a question of, 
obviously Crash Course tries to be comprehensive in the sense of, you know, we want to cover a base amount of material, no matter what, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to build up, we're going to hire like curriculum experts to decide from video to video to video, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, this is the content we're going to cover and then we have animators and video producers come in and decide what's going to go on the screen as that happens and yes. they definitely do have portions where okay you know they have um, a charismatic expert right mm-hmm. um, in front of the camera reading a script that's definitely the case but yeah. <laughs> there is also so much stuff that they that they do visually Mm-hmm. That's very considered. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, you know, there's kind of the argument of, well, this is not the university's area of expertise, right? Whereas this is obviously crash courses and PBS's should area of expertise. Should it be, though? I think it should. <laughs> it should become, in... yeah. Yeah. And again, okay, I'm about to bring up um, a third a third um, Harvard course, right? Because mm-hmm. Justice, CS50, both Harvard courses... Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I also think it's not a coincidence because if you are a video producer and you're looking for a place where you want to capture ostensibly the best professors and the best teaching, mm. <laughs> you're just going to go straight to a few big names, right? Yep. Um, so there is a course um, called... Uh, it's a probability course, but I can't remember what it's called. And... In a strange way, it is. It's a it's a bit more traditional, I think, of a okay. of a of a college course, right? Rather than like justice and CS fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find the let me find the the name of the course because it's bothering me. edX Harvard probability, and I'm about to bring up one more one more Harvard kind of case study on this. Sure. Um, is this introduction to probability? Doesn't feel like. No, this is not. This is like stat one one zero x. Fat chance is what it's called. Fat chance. Okay. Yeah. Nice name. Yeah. So the idea for this course is that you know this is meant for people who don't have a math background, mm-hmm. who need to do math right mm-hmm. to fulfill their distribution requirements. Mm-hmm. And they come at it from the point of view of this may be the only maths class that these students do in college. Mm. <laughs> and so you always have that challenge of how do we engage people who believe they can't do maths, even if they're Harvard yep. students, right? How do yep. we um, bring in these people who have determined or have decided that maths is boring and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And you always have that thing of like, you know... Um, how do we hook them? Do we need to water down, in quotes, the curriculum and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, And I only did this for like a few, a a little bit before I moved on because I decided it wasn't in line with my goals and I actually (laughs) moved to stand in front of the camera with Mm. slides Mm. in the background kind of course, which was uh, Introduction to Discrete Math for Computer Science. Oh, God. On Coursera. Mm. Right. Okay, this one is also two to three professors standing in front of the camera, mm-hmm. talking to the camera, but mm-hmm. the simple change that they make is it's not a slideshow. Ah, praise Allah. Right? 
it's just like when you are doing an explainer, it's what you would expect of an explainer video, yes. right? It's like, okay, you know, uh, what are the problem? I have five like red balls and like three yellow balls. What is the probability that I will draw a, a yellow ball from, from the pile, from the bag, whatever? Yep. Then, for God's sake, <laughs> don't show the text. Show the balls. Yes. No, I mean, okay, effectively, it is still a slideshow, but it's a slideshow that's been transformed into an animation. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that CS50, mm-hmm. um, they have like 100 slides, slideshows. Yeah, yeah. That's which are my, public. That's my traditional slide deck as well. Right. right? My slide deck because is like six, 60 gigabytes. Correct. Because slides. they've done it in such a way that it's basically an orchestrated animation. Yes. Right? Like at this point, I'm going to click and you know, it's going to change and you have the impression that you're watching an evolving performance. It is a performance yes. pretty much, right? It is a performance, yeah. Um, but the slideshow is really a tool and not the nexus mm-hmm. of your lecture. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, of course, we, I, mean, um, I was... Bearing in uh, mind that, you mm-hmm. know, the lecture is what a uh, 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 13th century, you know, uh, uh, Greek era invention... And the fact that we 13th have century not, Greek era invention. No, obviously, it's, um, I'm not a, his, <laughs> I'm not a historian, but it is it is an ancient form of pedagogy, right? Right. The fact that we have not thought in this era of disruption, in this mm-hmm. know, pandemic, to even remotely alter the mode. Yeah. Instead, we're just porting everything bloody online. Whole, There's also a question. Is uh, shameful. There's also a question of whether the old style has ever been effective. Mm, no, right, because I don't think, point, yeah. you know, in, in a, in a uh, if we count the university's thousand year history, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, look, students uh, have not again. changed in a thousand years, mm-hmm. right? The mindset and yeah. the attitude of students have not changed in a thousand years. So if you mm-hmm. go to uh, Heidelberg, right, home of Germany's oldest university, yeah. they have a student jail. Did you know that? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? There's a student jail in Heidelberg. Um, okay. And this comes from the time when, uh, especially in medieval Europe, right? There was a university and the university was kind of like, it's the town and gown relation thing, right? Mm, right. You have a university and then you have the townspeople and the university administers its own discipline. Yes. And for students who are disruptive, you need a way to discipline them in order to maintain good relationships with, with the, with the city. Yeah, so there is a student jail. Let me pull that up because I think it's hilarious. And if you <laughs> want to look at it on on Wikipedia, you, you can. Um, and uh, when, yeah, I visited it with my with my sister when we went to Heidelberg. And let's see. Tourismheidelberg.com. Explore historical sites. <laughs> okay. I'm surprised this is a historical site, not a currently in use facility. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So, um, students were detained for minor offenses such as disturbing the peace and were mm-hmm. still allowed to attend lectures as long as they returned when their class was over. <laughs> and it says, like, in use between 1778 and 1914. Okay, so not medieval anymore, actually. Um, the walls mm. are filled with incarcerated students, students, that's a typo, students' writings, images, and portraits. And yeah, you go in there, right? You see like people like scroll, 
you know, hundred years old like scrawlings <laughs> on the wall of being like I'm bored, you know, like so and so was here and it's like um just yeah. What you do if you are a very, very bored student who has Indeed. been grounded effectively. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's also arguable whether to, to the degree to which the university, the institution of the university has been about the student as it mm-hmm. has been about the ivory tower. Right. Right. It's, I, I have a feeling, especially if you look at the origin of the university, it's been much more about giving academics a place. <laughs> and then, hey, it's- you know, if, if you want to come and like meet this famous academic or like this learned person, you can come, but, on the lecturer's terms, yeah, right? yeah and yeah. I think it's, it's a physical academy for hosting a brain, a brain in the yeah. jar, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's a fairly recent phenomenon that it's been turned into the a job pedagogical, of the, well, yeah, where education like, has actually become sort of the 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 focus. I have of, a. I mean, it's it's hard to say because if you think about the Greek academy, mm, that's yeah, definitely that's been about. That's definitely always been about about teaching. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, In any case, you know, I, I, I mean, the, the general point is that you know it's been slow, but there really does need to be some kind of shift towards you know, uh, shift in the way in which we teach, um, online especially. Yeah. Um, you know, given I mean, we need to exploit the fact that hey, this medium, pro, you know, presents you with the ability to do so much more. Speaking of right. Khan Academy. Hmm. <laughs> Oh no, yes, Khan Academy. <laughs> How do you feel Here about we go. it? I honestly don't have enough experience with Khan Academy. I mean, I've watched one or two of their videos on like probability theory or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, actually, it's uh, same because ago. I think I looked at Khan Academy for, I want to say stats. Okay. When I was preparing for the GRE. It's quite good. I mean, it's quite well put together, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, and I can see why many American students, you know, uh, that are not from elite institutions would turn towards Khan Academy as a, as an alternative source of education. Yeah. And I think what struck me actually was actually the fact that their videos are not very produced. No, it's not. Right. It's literally yeah. Sal Khan writing on the tablet. Yeah. Which right? honestly actually works. And I think this is a curious um, factor because when I think about CS50 and I think about justice, right? This these are these are lecturers who would probably teach exactly the same way without the presence of cameras. Right. Yeah. Right? Mm, yeah yes. The pedagogy has been refined for the live format, and then yeah. the the video producers are brought in to turn that established format into video, right? Mm, and I yeah. think you would say the same of Sal Khan. Like, he would probably be exactly the equally engaging in front of a whiteboard, right? Which yeah. I think is not something you can say of many teachers, which comes back to the pedagogy has to come first, no matter what, right? Yeah. Um, and I think if you're talking about an instructor, right, who is very good in office hours, in conversation with students, and doesn't, in my opinion at least, right? It does nothing for me 
in a lecture style, then you might mm-hmm. have to ask, like, should this be, should the lecture be the focus at all? Right. Yeah. Right. Why not? If poss- Obviously, this is a program that's trying to make as few synchronous events as possible. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. be a good idea, right, to have live lectures because yep. that would defeat the purpose. Yep. But then maybe this is a question of, it's a misallocation of, of resources, right? Maybe this person should be deployed elsewhere. Yeah. Right? Or you need to find a way to improve the pedagogical value of the lecture. Yes. I think we... So, we have talked about this before, but this conversation we had was ages ago, well before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Uh-huh. I think back when we were in junior college. <clears throat> oh my God. Okay. When we had our, you know, our sort of trial by fire of lecture, right? Uh-huh. And I think now it's become sharpened, right? Much more <clears throat> real because we are all in, living in a pandemic now, yeah. right? And the fact that, you know, the, the, the lecture as a medium of education... Uh, its weaknesses are far magnified yep. now because, right, <laughs> they're being asked to, to transition it to a, this bizarre online medium. Yep. And so, yeah, I, 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 I mean, okay, to be fair, it's a lot more work on the instructor's part to have to oh, make these content-rich yeah. videos, hybrid lectures, let's call them, or, or alternative lectures. Yep. But... You know, then the question is: Should not the university be providing resources and and you know infrastructure to allow to facilitate these things happening? And of course, bearing in mind, right, that the shift towards online learning was abrupt, really yes, fast, very very abrupt. And I yeah. think many instructors had no time to adapt yeah. to this new reality. So, yeah. you know, the question is: I mean, e- e- okay, even vloggers require ha- have a turnaround time for their yes. videos. Very much right. so. Two set famously what spends about a week in advance. I mean, unless uh, you're like videos Casey Neistat who puts out a video mm. a day, but he's crazy. That's yeah. I you mean, know, he's literally these... he's talked about his schedule before, and he basically huh. has he's working all the time. Yeah, yeah, which is not sustainable, <laughs> you know. And that's yeah. that's that's a full time job, right? So yeah. you know, if you're a lecturer or a professor and you have to do research and you have to write grants, that's obviously not going to be able to happen. So yeah. then, you know, the the sort of the teaching framework at the university needs to evolve around this. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But I, I mean, I, I really think that you know the sort of the influence, not influence, the vlogger paradigm needs to become more prominent. No, in I the agree. Way you teach, I agree, and I think okay. We, we've been talking about like the video format, right? But I mm. think there's something to sit, be said about certain audio formats as well. So I'm, I, brought, I mentioned the, the great podcast. courses. Yeah. The podcast, yeah. I mentioned the great courses, right? And the thing about the great courses is that they're very much um, still organized around the lecture paradigm. Are you familiar with the great courses? Uh, I've heard of it before, but I've never actually attended a single one. Yeah. I mean, so they existed in the days of CDs and, yes. and you know, yeah. VHS tapes and, and DVDs. <clears throat> Um, but the idea was, okay, it's, it's along the lines of, you know, democratizing education, right? Yeah. But they took the point of view of, um, I'm realizing that this, there's probably another hour's worth of material because (laughs) I, I, I still mentally have a checklist of all there's other stuff that I want to talk about here. I've had pineapple tart so I can keep going. Okay. All right. That's my lunch. (laughs) So, um... With the great courses, 
the idea was, okay, there are these great lecturers in universities, mm-hmm. focus on lecturers, right? There are these excellent yes. lecturers in universities who um, they are teaching only to their particular set of undergraduates or graduates, mm-hmm. but actually in these cases, often undergraduates because Most of the nature of the, yeah. because of the nature of what the great courses is, which is it's a for-profit yep. private company, right? Um, yep. They go out and they look for these lecturers, right? They are known to be very good lecturers and mm-hmm. they basically say, hey, you want to come down to our studio and then we'll record like a series of lectures and we are talking like 20 lectures, <laughs> Right, like yep. a full survey course. Okay? Yeah. And each episode, you're going to be talking to the camera pretty much for like half an hour or 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, and you will go through, you know, probably a semester's worth of material. And these will tend to be very um, low-level, 101-type courses, mm-hmm. right? Or, or surveys, you know, uh, introduction to the Roman Republic kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, I will say, yes, the lectures are very good. The lectures, the so organization. The list of, of people they've featured before. And holy shit. It's. John McWhorter. Yeah. John Searle. Actually, that's how I found John McWhorter, actually. Like, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yep. Like, they're serious. Wow. They're serious about. Sean Carroll. Holy cow. But Pretty the thing hell, is, yeah, okay. right, it is very much about, again, these are professors who have mastered the stand in front of a class and talk at length. Format. The rhetorical style. Right. And if you look mm-hmm. at, again, uh, Michael Sandel's justice mm-hmm. does not work in the great courses format because his is very discursive, mm-hmm. right? He okay. asks questions, he calls on students. Uh, he has students debate each other, right? He will say like, mm-hmm. okay, who agrees and who disagrees? All right, you yep. who agree, give your argument. Okay, yes. I'm going to call you. You disagree. Why do you disagree? And then That's you call back on the- seminar style. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> like, it's like a 300-person seminar, basically. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that doesn't work for the great courses as well. So they are very aware mm. of what works for that medium. Right, it just happens to replicate what most people think of as a university lecture. Right, right. Uh, but they also have constraints. Right, they are constrained mm-hmm. by what people will pay for. So they yes. will pay for names like Neil deGrasse Tyson giving a lecture. Right, and because it's Neil deGrasse Tyson, they are probably willing to put up with what might be a degraded lecture format. Because I'm sure, sure. when when these big names are lecturing, they are also calling on students, right? They are also answering yep. questions and things like that. You don't get the opportunity in a pre-recorded format. Um, the, the thing is, right, you need, they have, to foca- they have to focus on survey courses because those are the only ones where there, there is going to be enough volume to justify flying in professors oh, and yeah. having them big you know, go through this yeah. production. Yeah, and there there was a New York Times article also about how they actually go through this process. It's very, very... It's its own kind of rigorous, like, every word is scripted. And you know this because mm. some professors are really bad from read, at reading from a script. <laughs> and they will, like, fumble over their words, right? Yeah. And as much as yeah. they can, the producers try and cut those out, but you can still hear them. Yeah. So, I think... 
um, where I kind of want to jump across from here is firstly, there's the question of this has to be, you, you, you need a critical mass of students. Yeah. Otherwise it doesn't justify offering this course. I mean, that's true of universities in general. Right, like if okay, beyond actually beyond universities. Right? I mean, the other thing that you know, this again, fairly recent phenomenon, masterclass. Mm, yes. Right, which has gone beyond the sort of academic realm into you know cooking. So, uh, uh, what yeah. was the one that um, gardening? What's this, what's this gardening? No, what's the director? What's his face? Um, shit. Uh, what's uh, his how, face? Uh, uh, Ron Howard. Ron okay. Howard taught a course on what is it, was it screenwriting? No, that was screenwriting was the other guy, Aaron Sorkin. Mm, Ron Howard yes. taught something on, I think, how to produce a film or something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, anyway, but yeah. Margaret right, Atwood. So you go, Margaret <laughs> Atwood on writing, that's right. Yeah, yeah, writing, yeah. yeah. Gordon Ramsay on cooking. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so, okay, this is clearly the, 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 the zeitgeist, right? This is clearly the direction yeah. in which education is moving towards. Yeah. Uh, it's surprising that the university is not the one that is leading this change. It is actually yeah. private enterprise. It is actually... Yes production companies, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. It's very weird. So, okay, so here's the other, I was, here's, this is a good time to bring in the other thing that I was going to talk about, which is, um, are you familiar with To You? No. Okay, so... I only know To You Yu, who is the uh, Nobel Prize laureate for discovering, the Chinese Nobel Prize laureate who discovered um, Artemisia. Or Artemisin. <laughs> okay, so... To Sorry. you is um, they are an ed tech company, I guess. Okay. Um, you might also know them by Get Smarter. Um, ah, okay. That that's a small. That sounds yeah. more familiar, right? Okay. So again, talking about educational institutions and learning, I recently discovered, and I know how you feel about business school, but mm-hmm. I recently discovered um, that Harvard Business Review has a very extensive podcast network oh okay so they actually have some really interesting podcasts um and it is it is it is extensive in the sense that you know it's almost like a full podcast network kind of offering mm-hmm. so they have a, a series called cold call which is not about cold calling <laughs> or not about sales cold calling right okay they um what cold call is is because harvard business school famously teaches using case studies Mm-hmm. So, on cold call, they invite professors to come on the podcast and discuss a case study that they've written, and ideally ah. that they've taught in class. Okay. And if possible, they get the protagonist of the case on as well. Mm. So, the you know they run through the question like, okay, who's the protagonist? What's the situation that they're facing? what is the f- core question right at the what's the what is the case being used to teach um and then they walk through all the things that you might come across in a discussion right uh in in mm-hmm. an in class discussion so it's like you know what surprised you about students reactions what are some things that students have mentioned that uh you didn't think about or you know insights mm that have been offered inside the, in the classroom and things like that. Yeah. And this strikes me as being very suitable for both the case study format and the podcast format, right? Yes. Obviously, if you are 
you know, if you were doing this as a student, you would do it in the in the typical student style, right? Here is your mm-hmm. reading for the week. Come prepared. Mm-hmm. We will discuss <clears throat> in class. Then you sit in class, yeah. and then the professor. <clears throat> this is what is meant by cold call, right? The mm-hmm. professor cold calls a student. What ah, do you think about this week's okay. reading? <laughs> right to start the discussion. But, but, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then uh, in the podcast, right, it's actually Harvard's, uh, Harvard Business School's chief marketing officer, I believe, hosting the podcast. Okay, so okay. he does a similar thing, right? Except that now he's talking to the peer. <laughs> it's, yep. it's not like the student who's like, uh, I think that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, he will he'll read the case beforehand. He was like, "Oh, I found this case really interesting. What prompted you to write it? What's the question that you would start mm-hmm. the class with?" Right? Yeah. Uh and then they you know, uh, what I mentioned earlier, like what's the pedagogical purpose right. of choosing and writing this case? Right? And then they they go on and um discuss um a whole bunch of issues that you might cover in a typical, you know, business school classroom. So the the most recent episode is family business at a crossroads, scaling and succession. And it's basically mm-hmm. a family business who has hit upon a very successful product. And they are like, do we expand? Yep. Right. And potentially not become a family, not remain a family business because mm-hmm. we are going to need to, you know, bring in a professional CEO. It's, we can't control the company anymore. Mm-hmm. Is this really what we want to be? All that kind of stuff. Or should we just mm-hmm. be happy that we had a successful product and move on? Yeah. Right. Um, then it's like, what's I skipped some of these, and clearly some of these I played while I was going to sleep. Um, <laughs> just like in <laughs> class, I guess. Yeah. Fair. Uh, <laughs> lessons from IBM in Nazi Germany. Oh. Wow. So this is a question of uh, IBM did business with Nazi Germany, right? Yes. Um, if you are head of IBM in 1937. Would you seek out their business? Mm, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Should a pension fund try to change the world? So it's Oof. Japan's sovereign wealth fund. Yep. And should they try and deliberately invest in businesses that yep. have positive ethics yeah. and sustainability mm-hmm. records basically yeah. and then the professors yeah. come in and they have this discussion and this is something that makes a lot of sense for the podcast format because it's conversational right it's yep. contained in the sense that yep. here is a case study um, and we know what the scope of the discussion is going to be and it has a yes. theme around it right and of course from a marketing point of view right it's very easy for them to st- I, I won't say sell the podcast, right? But it's easy for them to say what this podcast is about, right? Yep. It's like yep. at Harvard Business School, we teach using case studies. Each podcast is about a case study, mm-hmm. right? And this is not what we traditionally think of when we think of education, mm. but it's a very good educational tool. Yes. It's so powerful. It's so rich as well. Right? Because it adds nuance to the content. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you also get a... And the thing is, it doesn't try and duplicate the classroom experience, which it, right. again, from a marketing point of view, they wouldn't want to. They want you to come to campus mm. and learn <laughs> on campus, right? And pay their humongous school fees. Yes. But if you can't, right, this is a perfectly mm. legitimate way to learn something adjacent 
Yep. And equally relevant. Yep, I right? agree. Yeah. 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 And they also have um, some other ones, like they have one called After Hours. It's literally okay. three to four HBS professors chatting. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And so it's like mandatory vaccinations and the big freeze in Texas. So okay. it's like, you know, somebody posed the question. Um, if you are running a business or if you are a manager in a business, mm-hmm. do you make all your employees get vaccinated? Yeah. Which is not an easy question, actually. Not at all. Not at not right? in the very least bit. Yeah, yeah. And then um, the new US stimulus package and the meaning of Brexit. Uh-huh. Oof. Which, I mean, it sounds really boring, honestly. <laughs> like, the title sounds really boring, right? <laughs> but what they were talking about is, it's like, you know, is the is the stimulus package any good? And, yeah. I mean, if you're not involved in the nitty-gritty, which I am not, right? I, mm-hmm. I just read the news and I'm like, yay, stimulus. I mean, I guess because, again, with Singapore, free money from the government is like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Whereas for the, for the Americans, it's a very novel idea. <laughs> <laughs> Right, <laughs> but they were talking about like, is this a is this a real is this a good stimulus? And they were actually saying that it's a very, it's an extremely um, misused hammer because they don't have the ability to distinguish who really needs the money from who doesn't. Right, and you have this absurd Means situation. That rubbish, yeah. What? Yeah, but. You have this rather absurd situation where you're going to give a thousand four hundred dollars to somebody who has lost their job and is like really struggling, and you're mm-hmm. also going to give a thousand four hundred dollars to somebody who has a million dollars in the bank, and all they're going to do yep. is bank Staff it, it up a wall. and yeah, yeah, and it's not stimulating the economy at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Oh no, I mean more importantly also, and and uh, it, uh, uh, this goes back to the whole mean uh, well, and, and partly means testing, but. You're going to be giving thousand four hundred dollars to someone who lives in Albuquerque for you know which rent is <laughs> yep. six hundred to eight hundred dollars a month, yep. uh, and someone living in LA for whom <laughs> rent is two thousand dollars a month, yeah, or more, yeah, exactly, right for the same type of housing. Yeah, they were talking about okay the meaning of Brexit and mm-hmm. one of the professors is Swiss, so okay. they were talking about you know, okay, what do you what do you all think about Brexit and. And the, the Swiss guy is like, from a historical point of view, Brexit is a great success because oh, I don't boy. think anybody has ever left uh, a union of any kind of, you know, political union <laughs> of any kind without a war. <laughs> <laughs> that is one way of framing things, but what a right. way to frame things, yikes. Then they had another question of, okay, neither of these things might happen, but do you think in the next 20 years, is it more likely that Britain rejoins the EU or somebody else leaves the EU? Mm. And, and something that I thought was hilarious was um, one of the professors said, there is no way after this that that the EU is going to allow Britain to rejoin because they have clearly demonstrated that they don't understand what the European project is about. They think, <laughs> that, they think that it's a trade union. Well, not a trade yep. union. Uh, uh, a trade... Um, Alliance or what's a, that term for it? It's a, a it's a customs block. union. It's a customs, customs union, union, right? That's right? right. Yeah, yeah. They think that it's a customs union, and and like, oh, we just we'll just sell stuff to other people instead, <clears throat> right? Yeah. <laughs> Which also is, I think, what's nice about this is, um, 
oh, here's the other side of it, right? They end the conversation every every episode with, what are your recommendations this week? And mm. after you hear these high, this high-level talk by people who have PhDs in government and, <laughs> you know, econs and everything, then they're like, yep. this week my recommendation is Lirak Chocolate. It's very good. What? <laughs> All right? Your, your or like, just I down. have a recipe. What? Your volume no, just I went mean, down. Sorry. Okay, sure. So, like, this week, just... I I would yeah. like to recommend um, an excellent chocolate from, from Switzerland. Yes. Lira, <laughs> right? Or this week, <laughs> I would like, you know, to... I've, I have watched R- Ratatouille for the first time. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I think this is part of the appeal of, you know, when people talk about how in-person learning mm-hmm. is so much better than online learning and they talk about the serendipity, right? Mm. Of you, yeah. Sometimes you just run into people in the corridor or you sit down with them and you learn all these things that you don't normally get elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? This is actually one way to kind of reclaim that a little bit. Yes. Because absolutely, it's a podcast, it's casual conversation. The conversation is wide-ranging from what you would discuss in the classroom to what you would discuss, you know, in the like student bars and whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, there's also kind of was it David Mitchell who said like the real education at Cambridge happens in the bars? Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> when you are skipping class and you're sitting there with your classmates and you're just shooting the shit, basically. Yes, right. Correct. Um, Which I mean, so all this is the long-winded way of saying we really need to be seconding media professionals to university teaching yeah. or uh, teaching academies. Yeah. We really should be doing that, right? right? At, at the very core, media professionals need to start now forming this core of reforming how education occurs at university. Um, beyond yeah. the old lectures, you know, lecture and tutorial method or the, you know, in the case of the UK, what the lecture and supervision method. Okay. So I, I, I know this is supposed to be a good way to, to wrap it up, but there was a case study on cold call which mm-hmm. talked about Get Smarter, To You, actually, because To You always right. Get okay. Smarter. Yeah. And um, and HBS has actually worked with To You. And the idea with the idea of To You, right, is they go to universities mm-hmm. and they the, their promise to universities is you have this expertise, we will find students who want to learn these things and we give you a platform to deliver that knowledge to them. Mm. And um, so what HBS did with, with uh, to you, with Get Smarter, was they created a business analytics course. Mm. Um, and they were commenting, <laughs> they were commenting that from the time that to you at- uh, approached them to the launch of the course was like a year or less than a year. Okay. And they said, stuff just doesn't get done that quickly at HBS, right? It's an old state institution. Yeah. And without the push and intervention from a private sector partner, they Mm. would never have moved that quickly. And I mean, that's one advantage of, um, I mean, this is a commonly cited advantage, right? Of a private company or private ownership, which is they're just much more responsive to the market. Um, The other thing that they brought up was to use promise is we have all this marketing data 
about what students want to learn and how they're going to learn it or how they, you know, the, the format that is most applicable to them. And mm-hmm. um, the comment from the HBS side was that all the people who went through these, the, the business analytics course, right, they said we didn't find the course the course found us meaning right this is a case of i mean if you're even vaguely interested in like online learning right i mean i i'm enrolled in an online degree program and i have been bombarded with <laughs> so many ads from to you it's like oh well, learn so it's not like, like sustainability have a, have a from oxford yes i mean that's true it's like <laughs> learn like ethics um, and decision yeah. making from Yale University. Learn sure. like you know, uh, climate leadership program, Oxford Ugh. Business School. It's like you know all that kind of stuff. There's just so that much of like it. a bloody oxymoron, but yes, you were <laughs> yeah. <saying>, sorry. <laughs> Ethics and leadership from Yale. Okay, uh, <laughs> but okay, um, but it's it's that kind of stuff. So it's this idea of people who want to learn these things, right? But mm-hmm. wouldn't normally think about seeking out a course for it yeah to you provides the inst- the infrastructure to mm. connect the university's expertise with the people who want to learn it for professional reasons and they do it mm-hmm. in such a way that you know it's online um it may be synchronous uh they talked about mm-hmm. how they move the case method online as well okay uh and apparently it's very successful but okay I'm, I'll take that word for it, I guess. Hmm. Um, and again, this is not a case of uh, media professionals, but this is somebody who brings us, this is, you know, a company that brings a skill set outside of traditional educational pedagogy, right? Right. Who says, you have X and we have students who want to learn X, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they are not a good fit for your traditional mm-hmm. degree program. Yeah. Right. And we are going to be the platform to allow you, the school, to deliver that knowledge and mm-hmm. to also get the student who normally wouldn't even know where to look. Yes. Right. Um, and there is also a question which is shared with the great courses of like, you can't make this the educational platform, right? You can't mm. substitute this. You can't substitute the the university with this. Structure of education. Yeah, exactly. Yes, because these companies will always be subject to market forces. Yes. Right. They will only offer classes that they know people will buy, and that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. what you know. That's not necessarily what you want a university to be or to do. Yeah. Um, but it's I think probably a very necessary compliment, Mm -hmm. especially now, (laughs) when, when universities don't get to kind of flex their traditional in-person learning mm-hmm. muscles anyway. So so again, I mean, and I'm going to reframe this again and again. University lectures need production value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really need... You read- I wouldn't even say video professionals at this point. They need no. new media professionals yeah, who can actually turn that content into something that's palatable for... Well, no, they need new, new they need new media professionals to generate content. <laughs> <laughs> content in the capital content. C modern day usage, oh. right? In the way yeah. it's being used these days online. I hate it, but it makes sense here. 
Brady Heron has a Brady Heron of number file. Mm-hmm. <laughs> has, number a, file yeah. has a rant. And I also think on, the, he did the, uh, uh, the, the periodic table of videos as well. Yes, periodic videos, yeah. He yeah. has a rant on uh, Hello Internet, which is dormant now anyway. But he, mm. he had a rant a while ago on um, how he hates the word content and creator. It's like content creator. <laughs> it's like just his, his kryptonite is like, ugh. <laughs> because I think what he opposes is the idea, right, that you can have content mm-hmm. as content. Capital as C. As opposed to... Yeah. Yeah, capital C content just for its mm. own sake. Like, I think he yeah. always wants to pair up content with substance. Yes. Right? But so much content now is just like, it's just like, um, you know, <laughs> it's watch It's as me. meaningless a term as influencer. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very much about like, same, propagating uh, memes and, and yeah. stuff like that. Correct. Right? Without, right. Yeah. Living on 4chan or Reddit. Yeah. And of course, the irony of it, <laughs> which will no doubt is is probably part of the reason why it bothers him so much. YouTube considers him a content creator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what he is to YouTube, right? It's more yeah. content for us. Yeah, exactly. You know. Okay. I I think I've exhausted. This is two episodes things. worth of conversation. I think you know this can be a. Two I think we can series. now take a month off. I we can take a month off. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. This is content. It's content. Capital C content. Capital C. Alright. Um, anyway, let's wrap up. This is Monkey Mind, episode 20. Amazing. Uh, we actually did 20 oh episodes in a year, which is... Jeez Louise. Which is not too bad, I we think. under par? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. I, I don't know if you call it under par. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. under par is good, right? So that's actually, yeah. <laughs> under par, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> under par is actually good. We've shot at par. Well, this is this is annoying. Now that you've mentioned it, under par is good <laughs> in golf, but it's bad everywhere yeah, else. This is a right. very so no, it's a really bad metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a misused metaphor. Anyway, um, but also episode golf. <laughs> episode twenty. So you can find the show notes for this at monkeymind.xyz slash zero two zero. Episodes nineteen and eighteen have not been published yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to it. I'll get to it. You will wait. Yeah, you you can you can wait. We are we are slow content creators with a long turnaround time. <laughs> All right, and uh, I guess we'll see you next month. Now, <laughs> next month. I mean, it's already middle of March, so it's the Ides of March. It is the Ides of March. All right. All right. Till next time. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>